Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. It is always wonderful to be with all of you. I hope you're having a, a great month. And uh, again, there is not want of things to talk about uh, this week. We have a number of issues that I want to cover with you, but most namely, a couple things. First of all, can you believe that our Air Force Academy, Air Force Academy cadets are being taught not to use the word terrorist? Yeah, yep. Terrorist is a bad word for our military, who right now one of the primary objectives they have is countering terrorism. And uh, if there's any program, I think, that can give you clarity about what it is to define a terrorist, uh, I hope this is one. I reform this. Uh, also, I want to talk about Prince now come King Charles and his relationship with Islam and what that means. There's been a lot written in the last few weeks about his affinity, his love, his positivity towards the faith of Islam. And should we take that at face value? We've talked actually about this before, many years ago as have many of us in this space, in the counter-jihad space. And I'll tell you, Prince Charles was no, uh, not significant help when it came to identifying needs to reform who the problems are and otherwise. So we'll get to that. But now King Charles needs to be held to account. Now, Let's touch base uh, uh, first back on our academies. You know, I'm a former Navy officer, served 11 years, was on a Navy scholarship through medical school, and I cannot tell you what it meant to me to serve in our armed forces, that ultimately the armed forces of the United States are the institution that protect our freedoms, that protect our institution, that protect our nation. They are charged with the not too small task and the tall task of keeping our country safe from enemies foreign and domestic to protecting our constitutional principles and our bill of rights to promoting our principles abroad in wherever they may serve in our bases and in our strategy whatever form that may take both hot warm and cold in its conflicts and the ability to be clear in definitions might be appropriate to wax a little bit eloquent and philosophical about the nuance of language when you're sitting in the ivory towers of Harvard or, or Ivy League schools or universities or whatever that might be. But in the military, we don't have time for that. We never know when we might be called to a conflict. We never know when we have to overnight turn our best and brightest into a fighting force that is actually operational. Every day there are operations being served around the world on behalf of the American people. We may at times disagree or agree with the policy being being enacted at that time, but at the end of the day, it has served us well since 
1776 and the first revolution against the British Empire. Now, what happened recently? There's a PowerPoint that you can get online from Scrib D and Adam Credo to his credit talked about this in a piece on September 22nd, 22 on the Free Beacon. And he said, the United States Air Force Academy is training cadets to use inclusive language that bars them from calling people terrorists or using male and female identifiers, according to an official PowerPoint being used by the elite military school and obtained by the Washington Free Beacon. The presentation is entitled Diversity and Inclusion, What It Is, Why We Care, and What We Can Do. And it takes cadets through a series of exercises meant to eradicate their use of gender pronouns and reinforce the need for inclusive language that avoids, avoids stereotypes, bias, and microaggressions. One portion of the presentation tells cadets to avoid language such as you guys, terrorists, and colorblind. And you look at those slides and you see the 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 military the air force appears to be all in and this is not news i know to many of you we've been flummoxed by how much a wholesale change in curriculum just sort of swept through like a hurricane and again there were certain condition and maladies that needed to be treated those conditions might include some occasional bigotry some occasional insensitivities and need for some, you know, when I was in the military, we, uh, at the time, there was moves to try to prevent, uh, as, as women were integrated into the military, that uh, unfortunately had been dominated by men and very paternal and misogynistic in some of its uh, policies. There began to be sort of a, a wave of, of appropriate instruction and engagement on what sexual harassment is, what gender harassment is, and and what are the signs of it and what are the appropriate mechanisms to report it. But again, having been in the seats listening, a lot of these things were just ineffective in the way they were meted out. Didn't change a culture. The culture change had to happen by the soldiers believing in it. And it slowly did happen as the actual integration of women into every part of our military occurred. Did it have its speed bumps? Did it have its obstacles and and uh, traditions that still need to be improved on? Absolutely. But that was a change that was long overdue. I don't recall wholesale changes in limiting who we were as a military occurring under the guise of defeating misogyny. And now as we defeat racism, which our country's been dealing with for over a century, and obviously since the civil rights movement, this DIE movement that now is sweeping comprehensively through every institution in the United States from medical associations and, and organizations, medical schools, universities, undergraduate and graduate, and now our military schools. How, how did this happen? The commandants of these schools are completely in on this. 
And I say, how did this happen? Because again, I'm not talking about the disease. There is some treatments that need to be done, but the wholesale treatment that includes DIE, diversity, inclusion, and equity, that is a packaged, pre-sealed treatment that's being given to every university, I would think that one school or one group of schools, which are academies, should have had a little bit more of uh, independence when it came to in, to integrating what it means to create a fighting machine versus what it means to talk about microaggressions and not using words like terrorists. Is it just me or is there some massive some some massive paradox occurring as a result of this? As Adam goes on, he says, The seminar is part of a larger push by the U.S. military and supporting institutions to foster what it describes as a more culturally inclusive environment, an effort that critics say is part of a woke cultural agenda being pushed by the Democratic Party's far-left flank. The U.S. Pacific Air Forces, the branch tasked with confronting China, recently ordered its senior leaders and commanders to stop using gender pronouns in written formats. The U.S. Navy recently published a video instructing its sailors on proper gender pronouns. The Army also mandates gender identity training and trains officers on when to offer subordinates gender transition surgery. The Air Force Academy seminar mirrors many of the efforts taking place in the military and also at the U.S. college campuses across the country. One portion of the course instructs cadets on the proper way to use inclusive language in everyday scenarios. The presentation materials say that diversity and inclusion are critical to developing warfighters prepared to lead the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Space Force with character. And key to this program is it's... it's admonition to stop using the word terrorist and then it says in parentheses because it happened i don't again we've defined terrorism as again rational thinkers define terrorism as those who commit acts of violence of war against unarmed combatants in a non-battle environment in order to achieve a political end, in order to achieve a socio-cultural climate of fear, and then change policy. Those are the two parts necessary for it to be an act of terrorism. Now, there's state-sponsored terrorism, there's a, a, a viral group militant ter terrorism, but at the end of the day, terrorism is a simple thing. A terrorist is somebody who uses terrorism to enact political change. How hard is that to define? But now, because there has been one particular viral jihadi entity from the Sunni and Shia extraction of my faith that includes Islamists, political Islamic movements that have used utilitarian ends, the ends justifying the means to commit acts of terror across the planet, from the U.S. to Indonesia, that ultimately that has then tagged the word terrorist with their race, and Islam isn't even a race, by the way, with their faith, or with the Arab race, or with the 
Which race? I, I don't get it. They're just all of a sudden taking words off the lexicon because the DIE people, the diversity, inclusion, and equity police, in an Orwellian way, think that somehow that term is equated with a certain group of people. It is absurd. And it weakens our military. It takes away their resolve because all of a sudden they become tongue-tied about what is the briefing of who they are, ta- who they are going to eradicate because a terror cell in Beirut or in Somalia or in uh, any country that they're called upon to deploy in Pakistan, Afghanistan, a terror cell has killed Americans and is actively planning to kill more And those terrorists are the target. What should we call them? A militant group of very angry individuals with a political desire to change or affect American policy? I I, I don't understand. It's just just patently absurd. Credo goes on and says a diverse and inclusive force is a warfighting imperative. Our, and, and he's citing the presentation, he said, our U.S. Air Force, Space Force faces a complex environment and tackles wicked complex problems. What do people call themselves? When in doubt, ask. Oh, so, so let's ask the terrorists. What do you, oh, oh, I'm sorry, Musta, you know, um, oh, oh, um, um, you know, Mr. Zarqawi, what, what, what do you call yourself? Are you a terrorist? Oh, okay, no, you're not. You are a freedom fighter. So therefore, we will call you a freedom fighter. Yep, you are a freedom fighter for the liberation of Islam. So I can tell you, by the way, as a Muslim, if you don't call these animals, these monsters, exactly what they are, and especially in our fighting forces, I am beyond offended because it insults every other Muslim, by the way. If you can't call these people terrorists, Muslims want to identify them as terrorists and as targets and what they are because it allows clarity regarding what we are not. Muslims who are freedom-loving, who love America, who believe in our constitutional system and who are anti-Islamist. So thus you see the fuzziness. The fuzziness of of the plan and strategy creates an animus that actually is far more racist than the symptoms that they sought to treat. So now the treatment is not only far, far more worse than the disease, it is cancerous. And it is destroying the very fabric of who we are as a country. And our schools, especially that are at the tip of the spear of protecting this country, are now being dissolved into oblivion, into a mush of nonsense. All under the name of D.I.E., This must change. It must be confronted. And I can tell you as somebody focused on naming the enemy, on naming the ideology as a Muslim who loves my faith, it is an interpretation of Islam that is the problem. And that is political Islam and Islamic state ideology. I've said that many times in this program. And those who seek that ends utilizing militancy are Islamist terrorists. Make no mistake about it. 
Okay, let's shift a little bit. Talk about the new king. And I mentioned briefly, I think a few episodes ago, that, uh, you know, I have to tell you, uh, um, as much as there's tradition and as much as there's sort of a historic meaning to the monarchy in Britain, as an Arab American, as somebody who uh, has been focused on looking at treating some of the primary cancers, one of the primary cancers across the Middle East that radicalizes and arrests any development and advancement of our communities intellectually, liberally, uh, academically, economically, etc., is tribalism, is monarchies, is the the archaic and uh, genetically supremacist concept of the fact that a certain family should be endowed with mandated property rights, with mandated uh, abilities to dictate and influence and control and often torture and abuse their, their people. And those people, according to monarchies, belong to them. They are their property. And this is the problem with historic lack of enlightenment without any significant process or advancement uh, through revolutions that monarchies became entrenched and the history I won't bore you with but you probably know them is uh, that whether it's Britain, France, the Dutch, uh, whoever it might be that had colonized and controlled many areas in the Middle East as they pulled out, the British for example, helped prop up the Saudi royal family before they left and said, you will control this. We will hand it to the quote-unquote Saudi people. Created the term Saudi as if the people were related to that ownership of that family and put into place a genetically supremacist institution that to this day continues to wreak havoc on freedom and on principles of rights and universal human rights. And again, this is, I'm not trying to say there's absolutely nothing positive done. They've had trillions of dollars to spend over the last few decades, some of which have been positive, but the vast majority of which have been self-serving, materialistic, and a complete waste when it came to actually, I mean, other than oil, what products have come out of the Middle East as a result of their monarchies. Now, granted, many of the governments in the Middle East are secular military dictatorships, but the tribalism is the same. The Assad family, the the uh, um, other families that might have their sons, as Qaddafi did and others, come up through the ranks and their families control. It's all basically nepotistic supremacism. Now, obviously, the Arab awakening began to correct some of that. But now fast forward to the British monarchy, a constitutional monarchy which has no political power, which ultimately is simply historic, but yet costs the British people a lot of money. And I'll let the Brits deal with whether that they're getting a return on that investment. They might as a result of tourism and other things, but... Uh, the bottom line is is it is a vestige of history, and there is some political, cultural influence, but they stay out of politics. It's often hard, other than when there's things that they claim are uh, 
are more populist, like climate change or or COVID issues, etc., pandemics, they do get involved in. But other than that, it's hard to find. And one of those things has been the British Empire's position on Islam, that somehow the empire, the British government, the last few hundred years, but when it was an empire, um, had a what it tried to to cultivate as a positive relationship with Islam. And then we look and we see Prince Charles was constantly, constantly interacting with the other monarchs across the Middle East, trying to uh, sow a, a positive relationship, which is what, what our country does. I'm, I'm very critical of American leaders that have not, have not used our friendships with Arab countries in order to effectuate real change and it's always been binary with an insult to human rights and the way in which we have coveted relationships with arab regimes so i've been i talk about that in my book a battle for the soul of islam and its pathology so listen i'm not i'm not just critical of the royal family the entire west that has been uh, apologists for dictators at times when it served our ends and as and as Condoleezza Rice said in her famous speech in Cairo in 2005, we for too long exchanged democratic principles for security, and, and after it was all set, said and done, we've got neither. And I could not agree with that more. But now as the ascending, the ascendant, King Charles, look no further than the Islamist media, the Muslim Brotherhood media enterprise from Qatar and Turkey and elsewhere and see how how much they're tripping over themselves and just bloviating about how wonderful the Middle East Eye, for example, a Muslim Brotherhood media arm, said Charles III, now the, how the king, the new king, became the most pro-Islam monarch in British history. And it goes on, a thoughtful man he studied Islam deeply, even going to the lengths of learning Arabic in order to read the Qur'an. Last week, Liz Truss took over as Prime Minister of what many consider to be the most Islamophobic government in British history. Oh, really? Islamophobic? Which has one of the, I think, the highest, the highest ranking Muslim in government history as in the West, which was Sajid Javid was initially Home Secretary, and then he became uh, Secretary of Health and Social Welfare, or I'm not sure the exact name, but bottom line, it's like our HHS Secretary in the United States. And he served until July, and th until he appropriately resigned in July, as Boris Johnson's days were numbered. But they don't care about that. When they want to label somebody Islamophobic, it's because the Muslim Council of Britain said so. The Muslim Brotherhood arm said so. And it doesn't matter if they're Muslims working closely with the administration, uh, with Boris Johnson and others. They simply wanted to call them Islamophobic. And now Liz Truss, they have labeled similarly in their attempt to call anyone who is anti-Islamist, anti-Muslim. And the Brotherhood group from the Middle East Eye goes on and says a government which refuses to engage with the largest representative body of British Muslims and has framed an invidious security regime which targets them in which a minister was sacked 
because her Muslim woman minister status was making colleagues feel uncomfortable. A government accused this week of treating Muslims like second-generation, second-class citizens. Oh, so there you go. But then it goes on to say, how wonderful, but how wonderful the king is. In a series of statements, the Brotherhood arm, propaganda arm said, dating back several decades, King Charles III has rebutted the Clash of Civilizations thesis, which argues that Islam is at war with the West. On the contrary, he argues that Islam, Judaism, and Christianity are three three great monotheistic religions which have far more in common than is generally appreciated. Since 1993, the new king has been a patron of the Oxford Center for Islamic Studies. In that year, he delivered his inaugural address entitled Islam in the West. He wasn't the sort of speech on religion that most people expect from politicians and royals. They tend to utter little more than empty platitudes. And it goes on to say how sympathetic he is to Palestinians, how much he opposed the Iraq invasion, on and on. And then how controversial he was as a prince because of these things. And you look, there are many, many writings about the concerns about how black and white and, and, and oblivious and apologetic Prince Charles was when, when it came to Islam. And whether it's the Middle East Quarterly article from 1997 by Ronnie Gordon and, J and David Stillman of Prince Charles of Arabia to the different times in which the verbiage, as Daniel Pipes notes in his post that was updated frequently from in which he uh, asked, obviously, the hyperbolic question, is Prince Charles a convert to Islam? And obviously he never converted and the Post never said he did, but at the end of the day, he was so apologetic about Islam with no criticism of Islamic leaders, no criticism. Actually, he actually had the temerity in 2003 to write a piece that basically says real Muslims. Yeah, he's basically doing takfir in 2005. I'm sorry. He said true Muslims must root out the extremists. Some deeply evil influence has been brought to bear on the impressionable young minds. Some may think that this cause is Islam, the prince said. It is anything but. It is a perversion of traditional Islam, as I understand it. Islam preaches humanity, tolerance, and a sense of community. These acts have nothing to do with any true faith. It is vital that everyone resist the temptation to condemn the Muslim community. And as Dr. Pipes points out, this seems like a press release from the Muslim Council of Britain. No acceptance or understanding of the root causes of political Islam... And what is behind this? The prince has never wavered in his fealty for the monarchs that have, uh, and, and I think this is the diagnosis for me. The, this is basically a couple things. First of all, it's self-interest in that the prince has been part of a monarchy from a country that left monarchs who are basically running what's equivalent the Vatican of Islam in Saudi Arabia. So when they left that monarch and handed them uh, uh, um, indefinite property rights over their people, over their land and oil and every other fortune in that country, they both have to mutually, symbiotically, parasitically provide sustenance for each other. 
culturally, sociopolitically, and globally. So if the institution of monarchy were to end after revolutions in the Middle East, would that mean that the institution of monarchy would end in Britain? Maybe, but I do think there's some self-service, you know, self-serving, um, oh, interest in, in promoting the monarchs. Now, second... And the the examples are just unbelievable. And really, Dr. Pipes posts for years. He's updated a number of areas. One, you know, strikes me uh, as very relevant, which was related to Salman Rushdie in May 1, 2014, in which he notes that a new retelling of the Rushdie affair quotes Martin Amis of the 89 reaction of Prince Charles to the Khomeini edict against Rushdie. And Amos writes, I had an argument with Prince Charles at a small dinner party. He said very typically, it seems to me, I'm sorry, but if someone insults someone else's deepest convictions, well then, blah, blah, blah. And I said that a novel doesn't set out to insult anyone. It sets out to give pleasure to its readers, I told him. A novel is essentially playful undertaking, and this is an exceedingly playful novel. The prince took it on board, but I'd suppose the next night at a different party he would have had said, said the same thing. So, you know, there's so many examples, and I have to tell you, it is important that we look and treat the primary pathologies of what's happening across the Muslim-majority world, and tribalism, monarchies, and the entrenched institutions that, look what Assad did and his family continue to do, they weathered the storm and there were apologists for them who in the West said that they were not in defense of Assad, but they were just trying to say, well, we should not, this is not our fight. And I could not agree more. It was not that I was intending or if you somehow were anti-Assad or anti-tribalism of the militancy that we saw from Assad to the royal families, that somehow you become an advocate for aggression and invasions no but there is a way to have a policy in which you call a spade a spade and you are clear on what the root causes is of the problems the root cause of isis's ideology is extreme interpretations of islam that originated in saudi arabia that originated in the middle east and it's radical extreme interpretations that needs to go through wholesale reform that needs to go through not just marginalization of the technique of militancy but the entrenched power structures that are feeding and making money out of the establishment the islamic establishment and prince charles now king charles has done none of that so i'm sorry if i'm not a fan of the king i'm not being an anti-brit i think the relationship between america and our greatest friend on the planet the British people and the British government is stronger than it ever has been and should be and should continue. But it is another thing to be open and honest about what damage the apologetics from the royal family, especially Prince Charles, has done to stagnating Islam in the 12th and 13th century rather than giving a, a, a appropriate fertilization for change and stimulus for change from western enlightened countries thank you for joining me this is zudi jasser on reform this please tell your friends about the podcast and spread it on social media 
Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and at Reform This Radio. God bless, and we'll see you soon. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.